Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher and theologian Tim Mawson. It's a kind of logical impossibility that life be fully meaningful in every sense we reasonably care about. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Tim Mawson is a theologian and philosopher of religion at Oxford University and the author of several dozen articles, chapters, and book reviews, as well as an introductory text for philosophy of religion called Belief in God. Dr. Tim, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Tim, most of your work has focused on God's properties and the arguments for and against his existence, but recently you wrote a paper arguing that atheists ought to pray to God that they become believers. How does that argument go? I have indeed. It's only certain atheists, I should say, that I think my conclusion pertains to there. Those who think God's existence is a relatively important one, those who assign a greater than negligible probability to his existence, obviously, given they're atheists, they think the probability of his, his existing is very much less than 50-50, but I take it that some atheists are atheists, but they assign it a non-zero probability. And those atheists who aren't in possession of good arguments to the effect that they uh, get false positives by entering into such prayers. But those atheists, I think, and I think there are some who fall into that category, they should pray uh, to God that he stop them being atheists. And the sort of argument is based around an analogy that I go into and articulate and then try and sort of defend it being analogical to the case in, in point. An analogy with what I call a sort of a darkened room into which a stream of people go and out of which a stream of people come. And there's a divergence of opinions between the people going in and out of this room about whether there's anyone else in this darkened room. They all agree that they've uh, not seen anybody in the room. But some say that they, as they come out of the room that they've spoken to someone in this room, a wise old man who uh, has told them very interesting things and in a relationship with whom they've gained great personal satisfaction. Some say that. Others say that there's no such person in the room. They just hence hypothesize that people in the first group are sort of hearing their own voices and mistaking these echoes for um, someone else or whatever. You yourself then, if you're an atheist, uh, if this analogy is uh, apposite, you yourself have come to believe that the second view is right. There probably isn't anyone uh, in the room, even possibly there almost certainly isn't anyone in the room. But if you were to find yourself in this darkened room uh, one day, I'd say, well, it would be a bit sort of epistemically negligent if you had no other pressing business to attend to, a bit negligent of you not to shout out a few things like, is anyone there? If you're there, please speak to me. And so by analogy, I suggest certain atheists, those who sort of are in the sort of analogical position of being in the room with no pressing business to hand, uh, pressing business other than this, should say, okay, God, if you're out there, you know, speak to me. And de facto, that is praying to God that he stopped them being an atheist. So that's it. That's it in a nutshell. What do you think? <laughs> well, that's a very interesting <laughs> argument. I'm not even sure that I have anything to disagree with there. And in fact, I, on occasion, I believe uh, several times have just, you know, why not? Why? I mean, like you say, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. cost me anything to spend a few seconds saying, you know, hey, Jesus, if you're out there, I, I'd love to for you to reveal yourself to me. Or, hey, Allah, if you're out there, why not reveal yourself to me? I don't see any problem with that. Yeah, and I pushed the boat out. I mean, in the paper, I pushed the boat out a little bit further than that because I, I say, well, possibly more than a few seconds. But I agree that insofar as I make the onus uh, of of prayer greater than the 
plausibility of it being a prima facie obligation on you to engage in it will become less in that obviously there are lots of other worthy ways of investigating the issue of God's existence other than this experimental uh, method, the natural theological arguments um, and natural atheological arguments which one should probably be spending one's time looking at. So my claim is that some element of this, and it may be greater or lesser in individual extents, but some element of this experimental method should be a proper part of the repertoire of uh, atheism uh, in defending itself. Now, have you convinced vast swaths of the atheistic <laughs> philosophical community to start praying to Jesus? No, I don't think I have, actually. The paper has yet to come out in, in hard copy, but I did argue for the same sort of conclusion in my book about five years ago. So vast swathes of the atheistic community have had opportunity to come and see the light and uh, start doing this. But I have to admit that uh, it's been met really with sort of the hushed tones of indifference that one might fear. Although someone who wrote an, another introductory book in philosophy of religion a couple of years later in 2008 was kind enough to find some time in their book to quote from me on this topic. But then they judged uh, sufficient to deal with my argument, the claim that they trusted their readers would find Mawson's words beyond parody. So I don't suppose that's a ringing endorsement <laughs> of the argument. But uh, <laughs> indeed, it's hard to imagine anything worse, really. I mean, one might hope when one advances an argument that uh, it will prompt interested discussion and some people will agree and some people will disagree. But in any case, even those who disagree will think that there's something of substance there that they need to uh, engage with. But to be told that one's work is beyond parity in this area is uh, certainly not that claim. So uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you're convinced that I hope your listeners will be too. I'm, I'm convinced and um, I hope that uh, even those that aren't convinced will feel the need to come up with some argument for why this experimental method doesn't have anything to offer them. I suppose I would, I would say to those who, who aren't convinced, I'd say, look, if, if you are an atheist, I, would you be able to say to one of your theist chums, as a reason for your atheism, well, look, I have prayed to God sincerely over several months. I've prayed to him that he reveal himself to me, and you know what? He's not done it. And that's another reason I have in my armory for why I'm an atheist. And if you can say that in, with hand on heart to your theist chum, then, well, fine, you've probably discharged the duty that I suggest that you're under. You've experimented in prayer and the results have come out in such a way as to support your atheism. But if you wouldn't be able to say that because you haven't actually conducted that experiment, well, my claim is just you're missing out on a trick and your case for atheism isn't as, isn't as strong as it would be if you conducted that experiment. Uh, perhaps you're missing out on more than a trick. Well, conduct the experiment and see if you find any evidence to think you are missing out on anything more than a trick. So if nothing else, you can appeal to the atheist's selfish motives to have more you know, arrows in his quiver to, to fire at the theist and say, hey, I even tried Tim Mawson's experiment and it failed, so there. Yeah, yeah, and and I think if I should say, well, if you have tried, and as I say, maybe just a sort of a flippant, whimsical, sort of arrow shot up uh, prayer that you didn't really want to be answered and you knew in your hearts you weren't really open-minded about being answered anyway, it wouldn't count. But that's not, uh, I, I should say, what I think all atheistic prayers uh, need to be. I think they can be sincere reflections which are very open to the possibility that if there were a God, he would speak to them. If those receive silence in reply or apparent silence in reply, then I think that is the atheist getting good evidence that their atheism is well-grounded and they, 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 they then have that right, an arrow in their quiver that they can fire at the face when they next get into conversation with them. Well, I, Luke Melhauser, feel comfortable endorsing your argument. Uh, uh, honestly, hey, great! I'll, I'll put that on. You know, on the other. There's a strap line for the paper, <laughs> as endorsed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. endorsed. And and honestly, you know, 
I think it's even a good idea to really to allow the atheist to spend some time making that request sincere in his or her heart, because if Jesus really is God, I, I find that incredibly implausible, but if Jesus really is God, that is something I would want to know. I mean, that would be pretty yeah. earth-shattering. So, and the same if, um, you know, Shiva is God or Allah is God, that would have pretty major consequences on my life. And if all I have to do is, is spend some time over a day or a couple days or a couple weeks sincerely, you know, calling out into that dark room, that's a very small price to pay to investigate the possibility that so many millions and millions of people find to be real for themselves. Yeah, and in, in doing so, we do find ourselves in the company of, of other philosophers. I mean, John Locke didn't articulate this, this argument in quite this fashion, but he thought that given the importance of the issue, every, every sort of person would, should be able to find some, some time in their lives to reflect on religious matters. Well, you're also working on a short paper about why the usual answers to the meaning of life question are so unsatisfying. What do you think is wrong with the usual answers about the meaning of life, and what do you have to say about it? Yeah, the starting point then is that assumption that, that answers to the question, what is the meaning of life, are unsatisfying. And if you don't start with that sort of reflective thought, you're not going to find the paper addressing your concerns. But it does seem to me that the traditional answers offered by sages of the past and continuing to be offered by sages in the present are unsatisfying in some way. So the meaning of life is to give and receive love. The meaning of life is to gain in wisdom of knowledge. The meaning of life is to find union with God. The meaning of life is to escape the suffering inherent in the cycle of rebirth and so on. None of these answers seems to me to somehow say all that there is to be said about the question. And I always end up thinking, well, there must be more to it than that when faced with any particular answer. And so the starting point for the paper is an investigation of if that feeling is well-grounded rather than just a sign that I'm not, <laughs> not satisfied by what should satisfy me. If that feeling is well-grounded, what could be the explanation of that? My contention is that some of the sources of dissatisfaction with the question arise from its ambiguity. Uh, we're asking a number of questions at once and persistent vagueness. We're not quite sure amongst the set of possible questions we could be uh, asking with that, what is the meaning of life formulation, which ones it is that we're most keen on asking. So some of the satisfaction comes from that, and some comes from features which have to do with life and meaningfulness themselves. And the aim in the paper is to show how, how this dissatisfaction arises and the extent to which it is ineliminable, um, even by a god, should he exist. And in doing that, I hope to show that we should be uh, satisfied with our dissatisfaction. So we'll not remove the dissatisfaction, but by showing how it's an inimitable, even by an omnipotent being, uh, enable us to come to a position where we're satisfied with it. So why do you think that it is the case that even if we add God to the picture, that still wouldn't give us the kind of meaning that we seem to seek after? Well, it's because I think there are various uh, legitimate sorts of meaning uh, which we seek after in our own lives as individuals and uh, life itself is ambiguous in the question what is the meaning of life is it what life of, as an individual the life of humanity but uh, uh, as such life in some broader sense a section of a life the whole of a life but in any case uh, life in any one of its senses can be meaningful in some ways but in being meaningful in some ways it would be rendered less meaningful in others so in the paper I go into a couple of accounts and I argue that if we live in a world where there is a God, then our individual lives are at least potentially more meaningful in a sense that Sartre discusses. 
which is hard to sort of articulate very clearly, but I, I think he um, manages to put his finger on uh, meaning as self-creative uh, autonomy. We have a sort of blank slate and we can uh, write on it uh, what we like. And if there's no God, then our lives are potentially uh, more meaningful in Sartre's sense. But if there's no God, then they're ultimately less meaningful in another sense, which we reasonably care about, uh, which uh, Tolstoy and other religious thinkers have described. If there's no God, they lack an, uh, a notion of ultimate uh, significance. There's nothing that ultimately matters. Uh, things can matter in the short term and whilst we're alive and whilst those who remember us are alive, but ultimately uh, it all turns to dust and is forgotten about, and that detracts from meaning in another sense. So I conclude that whatever our religious beliefs, our lives can't be meaningful in both these senses, uh, fully meaningful at least in both these senses at once. And as both these senses are senses which we reasonably care about, which we want our lives to be meaningful in, then this inescapable feature of life uh, may be unsatisfying for us. But then that it is a feature that not even God could remove, so we should be satisfied with dissatisfaction arising from that source. It's a kind of logical impossibility that life be fully meaningful in every sense we reasonably care about. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so are you chiefly concerned with just these two senses of meaning, that we might summarize them by reference to Sartre and Tolstoy, or are there other meanings that as you increase some, others necessarily decrease? Yeah, I think there are others. In the paper, I just use these two as an example to make the general point. But I think there are other senses of, of meaning as well in which uh, you could be increasing meaningfulness. I think your your issue is sort of, that's why it's sort of trade-off, is you increase in one sense, you decrease in another inevitably, I and mean, not just contingently as a result of some sort of you know, causal problem, but there's a metaphysical relationship between them which prevents even God managing to square all these circles. Yeah, I think there are others, but I don't really go into those others in the in the paper. And so that raises new questions about how to trade off meaningfulness in one sense for meaningfulness uh, in another. And I do go into uh, some of those. Hmm. Well, I think what I like about that paper, as you've summarized it there, is that discussions of meaning of life are often just so wishy-washy and just vague and not useful at all. And to have an analytic philosopher actually say something that it sounds to me like it might actually be insightful is very... <laughs> Very refreshing to me. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. My head is sort of swelling at this end with all these endorsements like that. <laughs> you're too kind, yeah. Well, then let's ju jump into something that we might disagree about then, huh? <laughs> okay, okay. One argument for God's existence that you've done significant work on is the fine-tuning argument. Could you start by just explaining what is fine-tuning that we're talking about, and how do you think that it presents evidence for the existence of God? Well, in essence, science seems to be telling us that had certain things in the laws of nature been even slightly different from the way they were, then the universe would have been very different in its uh, more macroscopic structures from the way that it is in such a, a way that life would have been impossible. And so in that sense, one might say the universe is fine-tuned for life. So, for, for example, scientists tell us that had the Big Bang had slightly more force than it did, then the universe would have expanded so fast that no stars, planets, and uh, or no life could have formed. Had it expanded slightly more slowly because the Big Bang had had less force, then everything would have collapsed back in on itself in such a short period of time that, again, no life could have formed. 
and as well as that which controls the force uh, present in the, in the Big Bang, there are a number of other quantities in the laws of nature, and scientists are approaching a consensus on what are the maximum deviations in these that would nevertheless have allowed uh, life in some broad way to form. And I should also point out that these are sort of fantastically small maximum deviations, so they tell us, if I, my memory serves me right, that the cosmological constant could only have deviated by a factor of 1 over 10 to the power of 120, the uh, ratio of electrons to protons by 1 over 10 to the power of uh, 37, and um, about 20 of these things, I think, at the moment. Of course, uh, well, the, number, the exact guess of how many of these things there are differs from scientist to scientist. Uh, I think even in a completed science, there's going to be at least one of these things, and it's going to look fantastically unlikely that it would have arisen uh, just by chance. So, to cut a long story short, the fine-tuning argument says, right, this needs an explanation, and the fine-tuning argument to the existence of God says, and the best explanation of it would be a God of the classical theistic sort. Uh, so it's an argument to best explanation from the apparent improbability of the universe being constructed in this very finely-tuned way by chance. And so one common objection to this argument is that we don't really need to look for an explanation of fine-tuning because... If the universe wasn't fine-tuned for us, we wouldn't be here to wonder about it. So we couldn't observe a universe that wasn't fine-tuned for our existence. So it's, we really shouldn't be that surprised that the universe is fine-tuned for our existence. Uh, what would you say to that? That is the most uh, common objection uh, to the argument. We wouldn't be here to think about it if it hadn't happened. So the fact that it has happened isn't something we need to think about that sort of response. And despite its pretty much universal appeal, and I confess intuitive appeal, I think that response is shown to be misguided by various thought experiments. And the one I use in uh, my book, I adapt from the uh, work of Richard Swinburne. A terrorist ties you up in a room with a machine, and the machine is linked up to a bomb which will, if it explodes, kill you. You see the terrorist put 10 ordinary packs of cards into the top of the machine, and he tells you that the machine will thoroughly shuffle these cards and then select 10 at random and drop them into a little tray on its front. Only if the tenant dishes out are all aces of hearts will the bomb not go off. Okay? So he leaves you, and you're understandably nervous. The machine whirs away. The first card comes out, and oh, it's an ace of hearts. The second, another ace of hearts. The third, ace of hearts, and so on. And in fact, all ten are aces of hearts, so the machine goes silent. The red light on the bomb turns to green. You've survived. The bomb hasn't uh, gone off. Now, that, I maintain, would require some explanation. The chances of ten aces of hearts being dished out in a row if the machine worked as the terrorist said it did are very small. And the fact that something very improbable has happened needs an explanation in terms of something that would make it less improbable. For example, you'd reasonably suspect the machine didn't work the way the terrorist had said it did. It had a preference for aces of hearts or something of that sort. And if the terrorist came in and brushed off your requiring of him that he explain uh, how the machine works in some way other than he's already done so, uh, if you, he brushed that off, you'd, you'd incline to give him uh, short shrift. You'd be giving him pretty short shrift anyway for being a terrorist who put you in this position. But you'd be inclined to give him even shorter shrift than you would otherwise have given him. Because although it may be true that you could not have observed any other outcome than one where ten aces of hearts had been dished out if what the terrorist told you was correct, the chances of that uh, you observing the outcome that you have observed are fantastically small if what the terrorist told you was correct. So you are reasonable in thinking that what the terrorist told you was incorrect and that it was some sort of put-up job. So that's the analogy, as I say, I take it from the work of Richard Swinburne. And there are other analogies, as Leslie's firing squad analogy. There are other analogies out there that seek to make the same point. 
that even if it can be very improbable that you uh, have observed a universe that's not conducive to life, uh, well, of course, because it's impossible that you have observed a universe that's not conducive to life, that doesn't make it unreasonable for you to seek uh, an explanation of that, which is equally improbable that you be here and observe a universe that's conducive to life, indeed not even equally improbable, even more improbable. Yeah, and then a different kind of objection might be, well, every possible universe is extremely unlikely, and so, you know, just like somebody's going to win the lottery, um, the mm. only thing that's impressive is if you can predict beforehand who's going to win the lottery. But that's not what we're doing with the fine-tuning argument. What we're doing is we're saying, you know, the special outcome that requires an explanation is intelligent life. But we're determining that after that's the lottery ticket that we drew. Uh, it would only be impressive if we had started out at the very beginning and said, all right, the, the one that's going to be interesting, that's meaningful, that's the, you know, ten aces in a row, is going to be intelligent life. And then that happens to, you know, come about. Now, that would be very interesting. But to say, you know, but to say you've got the lottery ticket that's 1758329 and then say, oh, well, the meaningful one is 1752389, that just doesn't seem to require an explanation. Yeah, now I think that is a good point. The argument does assume that life of our sort is special in a very strong sense of special, special in a would have been special even if there hadn't been any of it sense. And uh, that's a strong form of objectivism about value, stronger than um, some philosophers, many philosophers indeed, uh, would wish to uh, subscribe to. Yeah. Uh, I personally uh, do wish to subscribe to it, so I'm, I'm not worried by the fact the argument relies on that premise. And in the lecture that I gave on this, I, I call it uh, to indicate how, how strong it is, the trans-universality of values, a commitment to the idea that some values maintain their value across universes rather than just the universality of value, which would be a stronger claim than some philosophers would want to make anyway, that some uh, values maintain their value uh, everywhere in this universe. So it is a strong assumption, strong in the sense that it commits you to a lot, and some philosophers would say that it, that makes it rather implausible and weak in the sense of we've got less good reasons for it. But I, yeah, I think it's right, so I'm happy that it rests on that, on that premise. So the idea is that intelligent life would have some kind of intrinsic value in every possible universe? Is that right? That's it, yeah. And I think we can see that, but, you, well, let, let me try this out on you and see if, see if you're convinced. You may not be. If, if we imagine a universe that consists of just one hydrogen atom, for example, uh, okay, there's nothing, no sentient life, no, nothing else, there's just one hydrogen atom that's persisted for all eternity, or maybe it came into existence in a teeny big bang. <laughs> it's persisted since then. Um, that universe would have, I think we can say, certain good features. It can be imagined to have a certain uh, simple beauty about it, although, of course, there'd be no one in it to appreciate that beauty. Uh, there would be no suffering in it because there wouldn't be anyone in it. Uh, there'd be no suffering, and that in itself would be a good feature. Uh, there'd also be no shameful viciousness or willful ignorance. But there would equally certainly uh, be certain bad features of the universe consisting of only one hydrogen atom. As I say, there'd be no one in there to appreciate whatever beauty it had. There'd be no pleasure, no justifiable pride in it, no virtue, no knowledge in it. Uh, so it seems to me that we can, uh, in our imagination, look into universes in which there is no life and spot there certain values and certain disvalues. And one of the sort of disvalues, one of the sort of, oh, yes, it's not as good as it could have been because points we might make is, uh, 
universes which don't have life of our sort in it. That makes it kind of less overall ontologically valuable than a universe which in all other respects was equal but had uh, morally sentient, significantly free creatures in it. So it seems to me that the trans-universality of some value is plausible through thought experimentation of this sort. Uh, we can raise in our minds reasons for thinking that we're right in our sort of intuition if we have it as an intuition. But I have to admit, not all philosophers do have it as an intuition and a lot of philosophers would raise objections to this kind of taking our imagination on a holiday, thinking about logically possible worlds and sort of, you know, just having an intuitive response to what values we think are there and aren't there, and then drawing from that uh, nominally support for this premise. So, yeah, I, I think it's good, but you might disagree. <laughs> I'm sensing you do disagree. Well, yeah, I mean, my two main objections are, first, the one that you spoke about, about just kind of imagining possible universes and then just feeling, you know, oh, that feels like it would be less special or it would feel mm. like, you know, I mean, obviously intelligent life feels special to us because the, we are intelligent life and I don't think that our feelings on the mm. matter are very good guides to truth. Um, our, our feelings are not very reliable sources of information. And then my other concern there is that just as definitional matter, it's it's never really made much sense to me what it means to say that something has value apart from a valuer. I'm just not even clear on what that means, this idea of intrinsic value, of something having value in the absence of valuers. I just don't even really know what that means. Yeah, those are lines of objection that haven't, haven't been sort of unexplored by weighty philosophers uh, in, in the past and, uh, and continue to be pressed in the present. I do argue for this it's sort of in, in, in my book, A Little Place, and in, in, a, in a little article called uh, The Rational Inescapability of Value Objectivism. So I'd refer you to those works. Well, suppose I say this. There is a possible world, okay, isn't there, in which creatures are like us but don't believe in modus ponens. That is to say, they don't believe that if P implies Q and P, then Q. Right? They don't use that mode of reasoning. Rather, those creatures in this world we're imagining order their thoughts by the principle that if P implies Q and P, then not Q. Okay, So this is a bit weird, and they come to a lot of conclusions that aren't really supported by their premises in that world. But they don't care about that. In fact, they like coming to conclusions in this way. And in their world, a demon miraculously intervenes to prevent that way of thinking leading to other disvalues in their lives. And so they get on about as well as we do in all other respects. So in that the world that we've just sort of imagined, in that world, those creatures reasoning in a way that's obviously invalid feel special to them in just the way that reasoning in our way feels special to us. They value that way in just the same way as we value our way. So the, the valuers in each world value their ways of reasoning uh, to the same extent. In that we've controlled for other values, so as we have, uh, I specified that they get on bat as well in other respects as we get on in our world, then if we think of ourselves as having a reason to prefer to live in our world rather than in their world, that can only be because reasoning in our way is, we suppose, trans-universally across both universes better than reasoning in their way. And I would maintain that if we have any reason for any of our beliefs, we have reason to suppose that reasoning in our way is better than reasoning in theirs. Thus, we're committed to the trans-universality of the value of certain modes of reasoning. So that, I'd say, look, there's a thought experiment which seems to me to convince me that I am committed to this trans-universality, to thinking that some of the value, namely values of modes of reasoning, 
is valuable because they're those modes of reasoning that really are valid and that value isn't planted into them by me qua valuer but me qua valuer spot that it was already there and recognize in my sort of effective responses pre-existent value so it's a sort of direction of explanation type of uh, argument for why it is i think we'll need to actually think of some values at least as out there in a more objective sense does that make sense or convince are you going to give that the special endorsement or <laughs> <laughs> the much sought after luke Malhammer yeah endorsement. yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad that you've you know actually given an argument here that's more than most people do for this kind of thing uh, for me, I guess maybe I just don't have as much confidence in my intuitions as you do. Right. You know, I mean, my intuitions have been extraordinarily wrong about a huge number of things and continue to be wrong about many things. Uh, my intuitions, for example, say that what quantum mechanics is telling us is impossible, but I think mm. my intuitions are probably just wrong there. And so I understand the force of your argument for someone who really takes their intuition seriously. I just don't take my intuition seriously. And then also it comes back to this issue of value beyond a valuer. In your thought experiment there, I would want to ask about the, you know, in our universe anyway, the, the way that value is instantiated, I think, has to do with desires. That's what it means to value mm. something is to yeah. desire an outcome, right? And so let's say that in this other universe, value also was a desire type phenomenon. Then I would have to ask about the desires of the creatures that were in this universe mm -hmm. and whether they were being fulfilled by this uh, rather odd arrangement of, uh, <laughs> you know, illogical conclusions, but then having a demon intervene all the time. And those are the kinds of questions that I would ask, but that's just because of my own presuppositions about what it means for there to be value in a universe. Yeah. I understand your argument. I just, I think I don't have enough confidence in my intuitions, and I still have this difficult time even imagining what it means to say that there's value in the absence of a valuer. Yeah, no, I, I do rely on intuitions here, and I, I think that I'd say to you that you do too, and, and it's inescapable that we each do so, in that every argument, even the most abstract argument in, in formal logic, will rely at its basis on you intuitively spotting that this is a contradiction, and hence not both of these claims can be true, or whatever it might be. Um, and we can't get further back than that. And then, yes, there is that alternative uh, account of how value gets into the world, is that it's through the desires of creatures of a certain type of some sort. Yeah, and that's the Humean model, and I, I don't think it's right. <laughs> but, yeah, Hume was a great mind, and another great mind in contemporary philosophy have pushed this with great sophistication, and it would be a, a long and detailed debate that would probably end up... <laughs> <laughs> somewhat inconclusive if we were to get into it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this. Why do you think that we must conclude that the best explanation of the fine-tuning is some kind of personal being beyond the universe who's non-physical but has thoughts and desires or at least pro-attitudes and 
you know, the god of classical theism. Yeah, so suppose we'd, we'd sort of, that's why I got to that stage of the argument and you'd been prepared to grant me, at least for the sake of argument, that this, this sort of this sort of value does exist and we spot it in, instantiated in morally uh, sentient, significantly free creatures such as ourselves. In other words, you're also granting that we are those sorts of creatures. Yeah, I'd rather just leave off the morally free. We can leave it at intelligent life. That's hard enough for a universe. We could, okay, you could, yeah, we could, indeed. So you might need to grant all of that to get the argument to this stage. So we, if we sort of look past those, those concerns you've raised, then you might say, well, why conclude that the thing that explains this sort of valuable and intrinsically unlikely sort of state of affairs is a classical theistic god? Aren't there alternative uh, hypotheses that would equally well explain it? And first, I suppose I'd want to say, well, uh, then are we at least agreeing that the god of classical theism would explain it? So he's at least on the table as one of the entities that would explain why uh, this valuable and otherwise unlikely state of affairs would, would obtain. And uh, hopefully that kind of gets an affirmative answer. Then I, I admit that there are alternative explanations, and I think the most interesting one is uh, the naturalistic uh, multiverse uh, hypothesis or many universes explanation. And in uh, my book and in, in my lecture, I, I argue that that multiverse explanation does actually do, in some respects, rather better than the theistic one. So what is what is the multiverse hypothesis? Well, in essence, it's the hypothesis that rather than just the one trial, there would be many trials. There, there are many universes, each one of which tries out one of the sets of values uh, that the constants can take. And if you, there are many uh, goes at an unlikely thing, well, you're more likely to, over the run of uh, them, get the unlikely thing to happen than if there's just one go. So we can see that if we go back to my terrorist example, if the terrorists tried this machine linked up to this bomb out uh, enough times, then eventually, of course, someone would survive, even if it did work in the way that he said it did, even though it's fantastically unlikely in any one run that ten aces of hearts will come out. Well, if you had a thousand runs, it's proportionally less unlikely, still very unlikely. If you had ten thousand, if you had a hundred thousand, if you had a million. And, of course, eventually, if you say, well, suppose he tries it an infinite number of times, what's the statistical uh, chances of it coming out that someone survives once? Well, then it becomes a statistical certainty that uh, someone will survive. So in the lecture, I argue that anything short of positing that every possible universe is actual will still leave fine-tuning at a higher level uh, unexplained. But I also concede that the claim that every possible universe is actual, what I call the maximal multiverse hypothesis, would in fact explain why the universe is fine-tuned for us. And indeed, I concede that it would explain it better than theism explains it. But I don't think that that multiverse hypothesis would explain what I call the fine-tuning of us to the universe in particular. I think it undercuts our confidence that the future will resemble the past in the broad sense uh, that we need to suppose that it will if we're to conduct our everyday affairs. So I ultimately think that the God hypothesis does emerge on top uh, as the most likely to be true given the evidence. But I admit that there are other hypotheses that are at least left on the table as, as not disprovable in a sort of, you know, can be pushed off the table definitively way uh, by this evidence. Well, I'm curious about what you mean when you say that the multiverse hypothesis wouldn't as well explain the fact that we're fine-tuned to the universe. Uh, why does that not explain that as well as the theistic hypothesis? Yeah, so... 
on this maximal multiverse hypothesis, that's the hypothesis of every possible universe is actual, and we've got to that one, I argue, because one that says, no, a smaller subset of every possible universe is actual, we've got fine-tuning, well, why that smaller subset rather than some other smaller subset? So I'm the one that gets rid of fine-tuning ultimately by saying, well, no, it's every possible universe is actual. Well, as every possible universe is actual, so uh, from the fact that, roughly speaking, <laughs> there's an infinite number of ways one might go wrong when one believes something about the future and only one way in which one might go right. So on the maximal multiverse hypothesis, there are an infinite number of people who are just like us, just like the two of us up until this moment, who are about to go wrong in the predictions we have about the next five minutes of the universe. So the prediction that you know language will continue to function more or less as it has in the past, that sound waves will carry and the like. On the maximal multiverse hypothesis, then, the evidence we've collected to date through our experience does nothing to reduce the probability of us being about to discover that we're the one of the ones who's about to go wrong uh, when we suppose anything we're inclined to suppose about the future. Uh, so that's why I finish by suggesting that God uh, hypothesis does rather better, because whether a God, he would want us to live in a minimally inductively tractable universe. So it's a sort of, if you, if you think about other, other, other sort of issues in philosophy of which you, you, one's, one's familiar, it's a sort of, ah, oh, right, so this is the, how do you solve the problem of induction <laughs> issue? Um, yeah, I think that's a real problem if you've got every possible universe being actual, because if every possible universe is actual, then it really is the case that in, in lots of universes, emeralds don't stay green, having been green for the last however many years they've been green. Uh, for creatures like us who've seen emeralds just behaving exactly the same as they have in our universe, but then in one of those universes, emeralds turn blue, in another they turn yellow, in another they turn into carrots and the like, because uh, every possibility is actual somewhere. And so you've got no reason to believe that you're not one of these creatures whose inductive expectations are going to be played false by the way your universe unfolds from then on. Now, when we're talking about argument to the best explanation, and we say that theism is the best explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe, how is it that you, like, what criteria are you using to choose oh, one explanation over another? For example, we might be using Bayesian confirmation theory, or we might be saying, well, the best explanation is one that first of all, is an adequate explanation of the data, but then also has a certain list of explanatory virtues to a greater degree than other adequate expl uh, explanations, for example, simplicity and testability and explanatory scope and all those things that scientists and philosophers usually look for in a good explanation. So how is it that you're saying God is the best explanation and uh, why is he a better explanation than uh, some other alternatives? Yeah, I think one is looking for, yes, a, an explanation that has those virtues. For example, God, uh, the God of classical theism, emerges on top uh, relative to uh, other uh, supernaturalistic hypotheses that are polytheistic because uh, positing one God is simpler than positing half a dozen each with one presumes then a certain, you know, some division of labor between them and there has to be some explanation of why it is that one gets to be god of rivers whilst the other gets to be god of trees or whatever it might be. These are um, religious hypotheses that have been offered in, in the past uh, and they, mate, uh, they might in principle uh, be able to explain the data uh, as well as the god of 
classical theism, or in some cases, uh, perhaps explain it better. Uh, you might think, oh, well, if I posit two gods, one good and one evil, and that they're battling it out, that would explain, uh, to some extent, better than the god of classical theism hypothesis. Uh, it would explain the distribution of good and evil in the world rather better. That's why we have a problem of evil if we're a classical theist, which you don't really have if you're uh, one of these dualists of that, in that sense of dualist. So, yeah, simplicity is one uh, criterion. I admit it's not immediately clear, at least some of the time, which comes out on top when you weigh these things appropriately. So, for example, I, I argue, and this is an, a, a point that not everyone agrees with for sure, that actually positing an infinite number of infinitely variable universes is a simpler explanation of the fine-tuning of uh, the universe to us than positing God, because although it's positing an infinite number of things, it's positing an infinite number of things which are fundamentally of the same type as a thing we already know exists, viz. the universe and simplicity with regard to type is to be preferred over simplicity with regard to token. Positing mm -hmm. God is positing only one thing, but it's a qualitatively new kind of thing to a universe. Right. And hence I say that even though there are only two entities on the classical theistic model, the universe and God, I mean, maybe there are angels and stuff as well, but let's sweep those from side, just two things. Wow, that must be simpler than positing an infinite number of things. I say, well, no, actually on the simplicity criterion alone, you'd actually prefer the maximal multiverse model to the God model, because although there's a lot more, instances, they're all instances of the same type, and it's simplicity with regard to type that we should rationally prefer over simplicity with regard to token. But not everyone um, agrees with um, that, uh, and some of them disagree because they think, yep, no, it's simplicity with regard to token rather than type. Uh, yeah, these are vexed issues, for sure. <laughs> now, it seems to me, Tim, that when philosophers of religion are making arguments to the best explanation, with God being offered as the best explanation, and they use an explanatory virtues type of approach, they tend yeah. to really focus on the explanatory virtue of simplicity because the kind of medieval perfect being theology classical theism uh, hypothesis can be construed as fairly simple. I don't know if that succeeds, but that's usually the assumption that's being used. And then uh, other explanatory virtues that are usually used in all other fields of science and philosophy are given quite a short shrift. For example, testability is usually considered a mm. extremely important uh, explanatory virtue in all other fields, but it seems to be ignored in philosophy of religion when offering God as a best explanation, and my suspicion is that that's because the God hypothesis being offered is not that testable. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think you're you're right in your your analysis that yeah, testability isn't isn't as much to the forefront as uh, as it would be in other fields. I wonder whether I think the God hypothesis, as it were, is testable. I mean, if if what if you really were convinced by some of uh, the arguments, uh, you know, that you should pray to stop being an atheist, then I then maybe well, there is an experiment right now uh, which we could all conduct that would be inconclusive. I mean, uh, but all experiments are inconclusive, uh, inconclusive test uh, of whether or not there is a God, uh, because if there is a God and you ask him to reveal himself to you, that gives him, Ceteris Barabbas, a reason to reveal himself to you. And so if you ask him, you hear silence in reply, that is you gaining evidence that he doesn't exist. Uh, and that's uh, pretty testable, testable by any of us. We don't need to go to any labs or get any complex scientific equipment. Uh, we can just do it right now. So maybe God's hypothesis is actually more readily testable than uh, most high-level scientific uh, hypotheses. And also, of course, the, the kind of classic move here is also this sort of a eschatological verification model where you, you just say, well, 
we, we sort of test it somewhat definitively by waiting until we die. And now, of course, most theists are keen to say to people, well, don't just wait until you die and then find out the answer, but try and do something to find it out this side of the grave. But if theism is right, then um, once we've died, we'll be in receipt of all sorts of uh, experiences which will um, confirm uh, the account. Of course, if theism is wrong, uh, or if naturalism is, is, is right, I should say, because certain polytheistic models might work, then we'll never have our theistic belief disconfirmed because we'll just die and that'll be the end of it. But um, I wonder if actually we could make a bit more mileage out of the notion of testing, testing God's existence in a way that's pretty closely analogous to the way in which scientific hypotheses are testable. Yeah, well, and I would be happy to hear that uh, the God hypothesis is more testable than it's often presented, but I would like to know what are the specific predictions that come out of the God hypothesis that's being offered, and how is it that those predictions are being derived from the model? I mean, I understand, mm. I understand how the predictions come out of um, the equations of general relativity, but I... I'm not, I mean, I guess maybe just because the God hypothesis is an intentional explanation, the answer is usually, well, God wanted it that way, and that's where the predictions come from? Yeah, yeah, and it, in that it's positing a, a mind, it won't be as it were the sort of predictability that the hard sciences might lend themselves to, it'll be more the predictability that social sciences lend themselves to, or psychology lends itself to. Uh, but then, yeah, um, I think you could probably... Uh, as I say, derived from the God hypothesis, the prediction that if there is a God, he's likely to want to answer your prayers if you relatively earnestly and sincerely uh, ask him to do so. Um, hence, you should uh, pray to stop being an atheist if you are an atheist, you know, all other things being, of course, I say, there's a few caveats around that. And um, you can come up with the prediction that after your death, you'll, you'll uh, meet him in heaven. And uh, yes, of course, the only way to conduct the experiment that would you know, be germane there would be to sort of die. And uh, I, I don't think many people are under an obligation to uh, die so as to further their knowledge in the philosophy of religion. <laughs> well, you probably disagree with me about this, but I think that many of those predictions, if those are the predictions that come out of the God hypothesis, that those predictions have been falsified, and that's a problem for theism. I think you're right that we may disagree there, but I, I take it as an, it's a sort of empirical matter that, well, is it the case that um, the vast majority of atheists who pray sincerely and in a relatively earnest way over an extended period actually do hear silence in response to their prayers? If it is the case that they do, well, then that's evidence that theism is, as a matter of fact, false. It's made a prediction. that we, We've tested it, and it's turned out that, uh, it, that that hasn't happened. So therefore, uh, we've got good reason from that to think that theism is false. Of course, we then might think, oh, but we've also got good reason to think that theism is true from the fine-tuning version of the design argument or whatever. Uh, but then perhaps we've got, on the other hand, we've got reason to think it's false from instances of evil in the world. that, are, And so all these things, I think, would have to be taken into the balance when you decided what overall you had reason to believe was true uh, or false. But um, yeah, I, I agree that in principle, if the data comes out that way, that's uh, a blow to theism. Well, is there anything that you would like to see happen in the academic debate? Okay, what would I like to see happen? Um... Uh, philosophers of religion to be paid better, I suppose, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'll never say say no to a pay rise, or at least I assume I, I, I'd never say no to a pay rise. I've never actually been offered a pay rise, and hence that's a little <laughs> hypothesis I've yet to put to the test. Um, but yes, money makes life easier. But uh, well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it would make us uh, materialistic 
we remember the sort of uh, story of Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, who when told that all his possessions had been irrevocably lost in a shipwreck, shrugged and said, fortune bids me to be a less encumbered philosopher, and so maybe uh, the relative level of remuneration philosophers <laughs> enjoy is such as to mean that we're relatively unencumbered by material wealth and hence can contemplate the eternal truths uh, all the more clearly, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a claim I'll make uh, to you here now, but uh, yeah, indeed, uh, I think maybe if, if someone offered me a pay rise tomorrow, I, I wouldn't lead with that thought. I'd just snap it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, well thank you very much for having me.